God's sovereignty in election is the basis for praise and the reason for humility. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we come before you at this moment in prayer, we ask that you would be pleased to open your word to us. Oh, God, the Holy Spirit, apply the powerful word of God to our hearts. Father, as we consider this morning your sovereignty and the plan of salvation, may it cause us to overflow with praise and may it move us to humbly live before you and others. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you please turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, as we read this passage and the fuller passage all the way through verse 14. I would hope that you would read the remainder of this passage later today. But today we'll be looking specifically at verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The word of the Lord is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. It is perfect, reviving the soul. Along with me, let us trust God to revive our souls with his word today. You may be seated. Last week, we began the sermon series, Saved to the Uttermost, and, and we looked at God's story. We considered the big picture of the Bible. We looked at God's story in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And today we turn to the beginning of that plan of redemption, that plan of salvation, as we consider the doctrine of election. As we look at the context of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1, it is the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. From verse 3 all the way to verse 14 in the Greek text is one long sentence. Dr. Hendrickson in his commentary spoke about this one long sentence with its 202 words. And he, and he said this, this, this sentence rolls on like a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. Hendrickson points us to the momentum we find as we consider these, these many blessings in these 14 verses and today the blessings that we find in how this verse begins, God choosing us, God choosing sinners to be redeemed in Christ before the foundation of the world was laid. God's spiritual blessings just keep building through this passage. And the reasons for us to praise God for these blessings keeps mounting. Election, however, is one of the most debated doctrines that we find in the Bible. So why do some people reject 
the doctrine of unconditional election. Some of the more common reasons, it's not fair, it's fatalistic, it destroys human freedom to choose, and one we often hear, it's anti-evangelism. Our text today, however, I think gives one of the major reasons people reject, if not the overarching reason people reject the doctrine of unconditional election. Knowingly or unknowingly, they are actually rejecting the biblical doctrine, God is sovereign in salvation. And so today we'll be looking at the beginning of the plan of salvation in election. We believe scripture teaches, all you have to, the Bible teaches, but also reflected in our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3 and chapter 9, that God is sovereign over the beginning of the plan of salvation election. He is sovereign over the end of salvation, which is glorification, and he is sovereign over the means to fulfill the beginning and accomplish the end that is the means and everything in between election and glorification. He is sovereign over that. Effectual calling, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, all of these things in their time, in an order, will cover through this sermon series. But my point is God is sovereign over the beginning of salvation, he's sovereign over the end of salvation, and he's sovereign over everything in between. God is sovereign. In case you didn't hear, God is sovereign. Today we'll focus on God's sovereignty in choosing some out of sinful humanity to everlasting life. Turn to page 7. You'll see a seven-point sermon outline. Do not fret. Let's get in it. Uh, actually, let's roll like a snowball, rolling downhill, increasing in volume, increasing in momentum as we contemplate the spiritual blessings, beginning with election, that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. First, the author of election is God the Father. Verse 3, we're told, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ. Then in verse 4, we read, he, that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose. Turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. This verse is known as the golden chain of salvation. Here the Apostle Paul says this, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. There's a whole lot of he in there, isn't there? He, God, God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is the author of salvation. In the beginning of the golden chain, those whom he predestined, and predestination here refers, or in general refers to, to God determining the eternal destinies of men. There are but two, election or reprobation. But Paul's use of predestined here in chapter 8 verse 30 refers to the election destiny 
under that heading predestination. He, God the Father, predestined or elected some to be ultimately glorified through the means that we'll talk about throughout this series that he has sovereignly ordained. Paul teaches in Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 and in Romans 8, 30 the same thing. God the Father is the sovereign author of salvation, the plan of salvation from the beginning to the end and everything in between. And here's the implication. There are so many that I've talked to over the years that seem to say with regards to their salvation, I initiated it. I chose Jesus. I walked down that aisle. But the implication of what we just read is that no, God has taken the, initiate, the initiative to save sinners and to save them to the uttermost. That's the implication. When you think about your salvation, the first thing you need to think about is that he chose me. He initiated it. Don't put salvation in your hands. Leave it where it belongs, in the hands of a sovereign God. Secondly, the object of election, us. Verse 4, he, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose us. And obviously here, the us refers to sinful humanity. Out of that mass of sinful humanity, God chose a number to be his people. Just like he spoke about through Moses in Deuteronomy 7 in that sovereign choice of Israel. So take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, you'll find the parable of the wedding feast. I want to make a few comments about this, but I'll read one verse in Matthew 22, and it's verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. And so the parable of the wedding feast is about coming into Christ's kingdom. And we should ask, well, how does one get into Christ's kingdom? Well, the parable answers that, that question. The expected guest in the parable pointing to the religious elite of the day in Judaism were invited, and likely they got a really nice invitation, calligraphy and the whole works. And they rejected it. They refused to come. And so then the king said, all right, servants, you go out to the main road, and as many as you call, call them to come. Go out to the masses. Go into the byways and the highways and the hedgerows, wherever it is, and call as many as will come to come. And so they did that. And these unworthy, ill-prepared people show up to get into this feast and they could not be allowed to enter as they came unworthy not dressed appropriately and so what did the father of the groom do but that all who came to gain entrance the unworthy horde that showed up He prepared wedding garments for them. He clothed them. And
and made them acceptable to enter in and to enjoy the festivities, the celebration with the Father. Beautiful picture of the gospel invitation being freely offered to all men. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. The general call of the gospel going forth. It's a beautiful picture of those who are called and those who show up to get in being ill-prepared, unworthy as they come. It's a beautiful picture of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, all that he did to accomplish wedding garments for the unworthy, that they may gain entrance into the banquet, into his kingdom. For many are called, but few are chosen. And those who came per that invitation represent the chosen from the fallen race, sinners with demerits, sinners who are unworthy, sinners like us. In Ephesians 1, 4, God chooses us, a number out of sinful humanity, to come. And we'll see in the weeks to come as we consider looking at salvation how God perfectly prepares what we'll just call today as the wedding garments, that which is essential for us to get into the kingdom. That is prepared for us and graciously bestowed upon us. And it is bestowed upon us irrespective of our merit and our demerits. Please get this. God does not. He said, go out to the main road and call as many as will come. He didn't say, call the people that wore red. He didn't say, call the people that had this style of hair, that looked this way, that were a member of that club. He said, call them. Invite them. Irrespective of who they are irrespective of their lineage, irrespective of their sin. Paul in Romans 9, 10 through 13 says this as regarding Rebecca and Jacob and Esau, the twins, in her womb. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. And it is, it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. God's sovereign choice is not based on merit. It's not based on demerits. It's not based on what we have done or what we have not done. The implication, God has taken the initiative to save sinners who are unworthy, who do not merit being in the kingdom. And therefore, election, the doctrine of election rightly understood, does not promote pride, but humbles us. Top ladies hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, naked, 
come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Those are words of someone who was humbled by the sovereign election that God had done in their lives. Third, the position of the elect is in Christ. The text tells us in verse 4, he chose us in him. And the him there is, going back to verse 3, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul uses the, the phrase in Christ or in him or some variation of that ten times in the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1. This phrase or some variation of it in Christ appears 33 times in the entire letter of Ephesians. In Christ or being united to Christ in saving faith is foundational to a right understanding of God's plan of salvation. And the absolute necessity of being in Christ is emphasized by Paul in Romans 6, 5 through 11. So turn there, Romans 6, 5 through 11, as I read, beginning with verse uh, 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let that word from God sink into your heart and soul. The absolute centrality of what we know as the doctrine of union with Christ, being in Christ. Now, J.C. is currently teaching an adult Sunday school class devoted to union with Christ. And I would heartily encourage you to begin attending. If you're not already attending, to go to the YouTube channel and download those videos and watch them. It's, it's just an absolute important doctrine and we'll focus more on being united to Christ and saving faith throughout the rest of this sermon series. But I want to just speak about one implication. When God sovereignly chooses a sinner, he elects them, he chooses them to be united to Christ in saving faith. And what does that mean? It means this. The power of sin... The power of that old sin nature, the power of that old self. And you know about the power of the old self, don't you? You know when that old self raises its little head deep down in your soul. You know what that feels like. You know what the struggle with that old nature feels like. We all do. 
But notice what happens when we are united to Christ in saving faith. The power of sin, the power of that old self, the dominion of sin, the power of death, the dominion of death, all of that has been removed. The power of death and sin is broken. And sinners like you and me in Christ have been set free. The terrible effects of the fall are overturned in Christ. Does that have implication in your life today and mine? You better believe it does. That's, a, that's something for which to give praise. That is something over which to be humble, right? Moving on, fourth, the timing of election is eternity past. Look at verse 4, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now the form of the Greek verb translated chose denotes past time. And what Paul is saying here, the grammar that he uses is this, that it points to the sovereign choice of a people out of sinful humanity that all of that was determined and set in eternity past before anything was created. Theologically, we understand it this way, that... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, got together in what theologians call the Council of the Trinity, and they made a covenant. They made an agreement, the covenant of redemption. And in that covenant of redemption, they not only agreed to redeem a people from sinful humanity, but they agreed on the plan of how redemption would be accomplished and who would be redeemed. And this means God has chosen every single sinner who will ultimately be glorified out of that, out of the number of sinful humanity, and that number being set and cannot be changed. So we can trust God, we can have confidence in God that He's not going to do something like this. You know. I thought, I thought about electing Ellen Monroe, and I wish I had him now. <laughs> Just kidding, Ellen. And so he kind of, afterthought, he, he adds somebody to, to that number. Likewise, he, he, he doesn't say, yeah, I elected Jason Van Gore, but see, this is what you get if you sit close to the front. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I, I elected that Jason Van Gore. Man, I'm, I'm, I have buyer's remorse. What, what is, what is going? See, God doesn't do any of that. <laughs> he chooses sovereignly before the foundation of the world is laid, and that number is set. And he's not going to go, I wish I'd have done, or I wish I had it done, thankfully, because I'm sure that he would have wished he hadn't elected me many times over. The implication, the, uh, the, the, the basis for our assurance of salvation, I believe, rests on the sovereign choice of God in eternity past with that number being set, with God having no buyer's remorse, with God not saying, wish I'd have thought of electing that person. 
and the implication of the fact that that golden rule that we read about in Romans 8.30, it cannot be broken. It will not be broken by anything. Why? Because God is sovereign. He sovereignly chose. He set the number of his elect people in eternity past, and it cannot be changed or altered. Even my obedience or disobedience is not going to alter it. Powers and principalities cannot alter it. Not anything in all the universe can alter God's sovereign choice of his elect people in eternity past. Now, does that encourage you? Is that a grounds for which you can rest your faith and have assurance of God's saving work for you and for me in Christ Jesus. What a blessing. We can actually, get this, we, we can actually believe, really stake our life on what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 37 through 39. Now, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Rolling on. The fifth, the motivation of election is, is love. Look at the end of verse 4 and beginning of verse 5. In love he predestined us. The term predestined here again reminder refers to God determining the eternal destinies of man reprobation or election here's referring to the election side of that proposition think of God choosing us out of the mass of sinful humanity to be redeemed in Christ and adopted as sons and daughters remember what uh, Jerry read in Deuteronomy chapter 7 with regards to God's motivation for choosing Israel. It was not because they were the biggest tribe, the smallest tribe, that they were great people. None of that played into it. It is not because you were more in number than any other people that God, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you. He chose them because he loved them. He loved them because he loved them. You know, love is blind, and that, that, that may be true when a man and a woman decide to get married. It's, it's easy to have unrealistic expectations as you find that special someone. Uh, the expectations come into uh, full force a little bit later on during the, med, the marriage, and maybe love becomes not so blind after all. But God's love is never blind. God loves us knowing us better than we know ourselves. He chose us because he loves us in light of all of our demerits, in light of all of our sin, in light of all of our warts, in light of all the negatives and what we even think is our positives. God loves us. He, he got into that relationship. He elected us. His love was not blind. He's sovereign. He not only knows us perfectly, he, he, he knows our innermost thoughts and our sin. He knows all of it, and he, and he loved us. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever just stopped and think about that? 
we go to an nth degree to cover up our faults so people will love us and accept us. We all want to be a part of a group. And sometimes it's hard to be ourselves out of fear that people won't accept us, people won't love us. All that's gone with God. We can try to hide like Adam and Eve did, but it doesn't work. He knows us. And he loves us. We are the object of his love, his redeeming love. And we were the objects of his love before the foundations of the world was laid. He chose to love us. Here's an implication. I think so many people, if not all of us, at some point or another, struggle with our identity. Anybody struggle with their identity? I think we all do at some level, some more than others, obviously. Who is my true self? I, if I hear this one more time, I mean, be your true self. That seems to be, that seems to be the guiding principle of our day. I'm not exactly sure what it means. <laughs> but I do know this, that our identity is this. Before the foundation of the world was laid, God who knows everything about me perfectly loved me and I became his beloved. That's what I know. That is my and your identity as the object of God's love. Six, the goal of election. Adoption in God's glory. So we see in verse five this goal of adoption that we're predestined, he predestined us for Adoption, and we will dedicate a whole sermon to the doctrine of adoption uh, throughout our sermon series. That'll be later. But for now, I just want to point out this just very, very briefly that, that adoption as sons and daughters of God through Christ Jesus is, is part of the reason that God chose us to begin with. That's amazing. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7, that in effect, he says, you are justified to be adopted as the children of God. Listen to Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's the implication. Too often, we live the Christian life like orphans, like we don't have a heavenly father on whom to depend. I'm just out here <laughs> on my own. And that's, how all, that's how so many of us live the Christian life. I, I struggle with doing that. And yet, that's not the case. We, Paul calls us here in Galatians 4 to live in light of our sonship. That we've been brought out from under Satan as our father. Jesus said, if God's not your father, Satan is. We've been brought, boy, talking about living as an orphan talking about having a really bad father, but we've, we've been brought into a, a father-son, father-daughter relationship with the living God through Christ. And therefore, Paul says, and, and I love this in Galatians 4, 7, and really what Paul is saying, quit living like an orphan. Quit li living like a slave. You're a son. He says this, so you're no longer a slave but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. And then the second goal is given in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Beloved there, referring to Christ. And what Paul is saying here is that God's sovereign choice of a sinner to, to, be, to have eternal life, it really is about his praise, God's praise, and God's worthiness. In, in other words, what Paul is saying is that at, as we dig down deeper in our soul in, into the realities of God choosing us before the foundation of the world, our concern is not us. Our concern is that God would be glorified in my election. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, I do want to bring up this point. I just want to mention it because we're not going to drill down with it. But, but God is glorified in election in choosing sinners to inherit eternal life. But God is also glorified in the reprobation of those who, are, who remain outside of his kingdom of, of the lost. God is glorified in, in both. And so here's the implication that I would just mention. For us to have this mindset, my salvation, God choosing me to be saved, we'll put it like that, is not ultimately about me. It is about God's glory. And we should live for the praise of God's glory. We should live for the one who shows us to be lifted up and exalted in our life in the church and in the world. I think this is one reason why sharing our testimony is a, is a wonderful way to say, God choosing me is not about me, it's about his glory. And I want to glorify God by telling you how much he has loved me. How much he has changed my life. Pointing to God, that should be. So much election, the doctrine of election is all about the debate. And, you know, why, why did God choose this person and not that person? And what Paul is saying is, that, no, no, no. God's sovereign choice is about his praise and his glory. And that's what we need to focus on, both in our personal lives and even as we interact with people on this doctrine. And then lastly, the seventh, the basis of election is God's will. We made it, seventh point. The text tells us that the basis of election at the end of verse 5 is this, according to the purpose of his will. We see a similar statement in Ephesians 1, verses 9 through 11. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Similarly, the passage we read from Romans 9, 10 through 13, we read that earlier, it speaks of the purposes of God's election standing and the purposes of God's election is based on the one who calls and not on anything else. I want us to look specifically, though, at a verse that is often used to reject the understanding that God bases his election solely upon his will, his sovereign choice. 
And sometimes people refer to Romans 8.29. Romans 8.29 comes before Romans 8.30 that we read earlier. So if you still have your finger on Romans 8.30, or go, 30, go back. And then we'll look at verse 29. It says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Well, if you just read that for, uh, and just take it for how it reads, I could see someone saying, that sure sounds like God elects because he knew who would choose him. And that's how many people often interpret that. Now, we must, we must say God is omniscient. God has perfect knowledge. But it's important to see in verse 29 that Paul does not say God foreknew the choice a person would make. That's not what Paul said. What Paul said, rather, was that God foreknew the person. The Greek word translated foreknew in Romans 8.29 follows that Old Testament concept of to know. And it, it refers to being determined to know one intimately or it, it could easily be translated to choose. So foreknew could be replaced with forechosen or to choose. So Paul in Romans 8.29 is saying the same thing as Paul is saying in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. God predestines the eternal destinies of men and he elects some to salvation. And he does so not because he foresees that that person is going to choose him, but he chooses solely according to his will, according to his purposes. In Deuteronomy 7, God chose Israel not based on anything in them or anything that they had done. He chose them because he chose them. And here's the implication. I, I, I remember grappling with this issue of election early on in my, my studies. And, you know, my, the, the question, why would God choose that person and not that person? It's not fair. And, and I remember as I was working through this as, as a much younger man and a much younger Christian and just coming to the place of saying, you know what, I'm asking the wrong question. The question I should be asking is, why has God chosen me? And that made all the difference to me. That's the question. Why would God choose me? The hymn we sang last week, How Sweet and Awesome is This Place, Isaac Watts. While our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Brothers and sisters, that's the question that we should be asking. Why did God elect me? And the only answer that I have come up with, the only answer that I can come up with from the Bible is that God elected me because he willed to elect me. God chose me because he willed to choose me to fulfill his purposes in election. God loved me before the foundation of the world because God loved me before the foundation of the world. It was his prerogative to love me or not to love me. Kind of sounds like what he said about Jacob and Esau before they even came out of the womb. 
he willed to adopt me. Because he willed to adopt me as his son. He willed to bless me with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Because he willed to bless me with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. This redundancy that you're hearing from me is to emphasize the absolute necessity of embracing God's sovereignty in election. I have so many demerits, and yet God chose to love me. God chose to place me in Christ that I would benefit from all the spiritual blessings that are not only listed here in Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, or 3 through 14, but throughout the whole of Scripture. Why did he do that? According to the purpose of his will. But I will say, it's very hard for autonomous human beings to let go and embrace the fact that God is sovereign over salvation and I am not. God is sovereign in election, the beginning of the plan of salvation. As we consider Paul's words in Ephesians 1, may these things that we've talked about from Scripture roll on like a snowball tumbling down a hill, picking up volume as it descends. May the realities of God's spiritual blessings in electing us to be in Christ keep building in our hearts and in our minds so that we overflow with praise to the one who has called us, to the one who has elected us. And we bow in humility before him for choosing such unworthy guests as ourselves. God's sovereignty and election is the basis for praise and the reason for humility. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have ordained the number of your people in eternity past that you sovereignly chose a number from the mass of sinful humanity to redeem them in Christ. Father, we marvel at your goodness. We praise you for your grace and mercy in choosing us. And we pray, O oh God, that as we grow in our understanding of all that you have done in choosing us to be in Christ, that we would truly be humbled. Work that, I pray, in us. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.